Take your Bible and find 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Today we'll have a message entitled, Thanks Be to God. Find 1 Thessalonians, and as you're finding that, I want you to imagine a dark room with a small flickering candle in the middle of it. And this small flickering candle in the middle of a dark room will represent this church in a city called Thessalonica. And the dark room represents a very sinful, idolatrous, in many ways, evil city. And in the midst of this dark room, this evil, idolatrous city, there is a small flickering candle, and that small flickering candle is the church of Thessalonica. And even though this church was outmanned by the darkness, outgunned by the darkness, and very well could be overtaken by the darkness, this church, this little resilient flame, stood firm in their faith. And not only did they stand firm, they did not allow the darkness to define them or change them, and they radiated the love of Christ, the gospel of Christ, the work of Christ to the darkness around them. These people did not just hear the gospel, but they embraced it and took it to heart. And that gospel that they embraced and they received transformed their lives so that they could not only become Christians, but be known in the city and around the city, for their faith in Christ. We're going to see by the end of this sermon a little bit more about this small flickering candle, which is the church of Thessalonica. You see, this letter we we're about to read today was written by the Apostle Paul, and he cared about what's going on in this church because he started this church. He went there, he preached the gospel, many people came to faith in Christ, he kind of helped them get established, but then due to some persecution and other things, he had to go somewhere else and leave the city. But now he's heard back that they're doing pretty well in, in most ways. And excited about that, he writes them this letter to encourage their faith. So we're going to see today, as we have our second sermon in this study, we're going to see a little bit about what he says to this, this church, that they might serve Christ better even in the darkness. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 we're going to read verses 1 through 7 this morning. If you found it, say word. Paul and Silas and Timothy unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. 
For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that you were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. Let's begin in verse 2, working our way through these few verses this morning. And again, a sermon entitled, uh, Thanks Be to God. And that's where we start. Because in verse 2, the very first thing he says, after introducing this letter, he says, thanks, we give thanks, we being Paul, Silas, Timothy, those people that are partnering with him in his ministry, we give thanks to who? To who? Does he write and say, we thank you for your amazing ministry, Church of Thessalonica? That's not what he says primarily, right? We give thanks to God. We give thanks to God always for you. We constantly mention, mention you in our prayers. You can almost hear Paul, Silas, Timothy praying, God, we thank you for what you did when we went through Thessalonica. We preached the gospel there, and for three weekends in a row on the Sabbath, Paul specifically preached the gospel. God, we thank you that when the gospel was preached, people heard it, you opened their hearts, and you changed their lives. We thank you, God, that though we had to leave the city, we thank you that you, you grew the church, you allowed the church to sustain, and even through much affliction, even through persecution, God, we thank you that the little church, the little young church there is doing well. God, we thank you for all of that. You see what they did? He's thanking God. And this shows us a very important truth. If you look back at the verse, what does this show us? What does it show us that he thanks God, always mentioning them in his prayers? It shows us that God is involved in their work of ministry. Would you agree with that? I would take it even a step further. Not only is God involved in their work of ministry, watch this, God is the decisive factor in their ministry. As a matter of fact, God is the decisive cause behind every good thing in your life and in my life, and he is the decisive cause behind every good thing we ever do, right? We rarely have any reason to boast in ourselves, even if we do something good, right? We know ultimately God is the cause of that good thing, and he deserves all praise and glory from it. And so because of that, Paul writes and says, church, I thank God for you. Because I know it is God who is to be thanked. Think about this illustration. Let's say I, I go to Jason's house and I need Jason to help me do, do some kind of work up here at the church. I go pick him up. We come over here. We do some work. And I take him back home and I go in and I say this. Casey, thank you so much for allowing Jason to come work at the church. I know you probably have some stuff for him to do around the house. But thank you for, for letting him come and help at the church. And why would I thank her? Because she had some involvement. Again, maybe she needed some stuff done there, and she's like, you know what, go do the church first. You can take care of this stuff later. And so I would thank both of them for that service, right? Again, I see a similar illustration here when Paul says, ultimately, yes, the church did a good work and is doing good works, but ultimately the one who deserves the praise, the glory, and the thanksgiving is God. And that's going to be the key to this entire sermon, by the way. 
Thanks be to God for all things. You're going to see this, and I have some illustrations here. I'm not going to read these to you this morning, but in all of Paul's letters, you're going to see this spiritual mindset of thanking God for what the church does. You're going to see it. And I want to apply this to us. I pray that we can have this kind of mindset Paul has, a very spiritual mindset. And I wonder if we do, because so often, and I see this a lot, I've mentioned this before, so often I'll see somebody come to Christ, and you'll see posts on Facebook like this, we're so proud of little Susie for coming to Christ. And I get what they're saying, right? But I would rather that post say, we're so thankful to God for little Susie coming to Christ. Why do we want to say that? Because we want people that read that post to know little Susie didn't just make that choice on her own, did she? God saved her soul. And in all ways, may we have a more spiritual mindset and a more a heart of thanksgiving that is toward God first and foremost. Well, why specifically is he thankful? Look at verse 3. Why specifically is, God, is Paul thankful to God for the church? He says, remembering without ceasing. And he gives us three things he remembers, three things to note here. Your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness or patience of hope. It's interesting to kind of read these three phrases. Work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. And kind of ask yourself, you know, what are, what are these things? And for me, when I first read this a couple of weeks ago, the, the three words that jumped off the page to me were faith, hope, and love. Can you think of other places in Scripture where those three go together? There are many. I put down a, a big list of those, but the, the famous one is 1 Corinthians 13. Remember this verse? It says, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And I just point that out to you to show you that these three attributes of God that he gives to us are often paired or matched together in Scripture. And this church that Paul is thankful for, this church that he started and that he's praying for, they have some type of work of faith, some type of labor of love, and they have hope in Christ. Now, I'll argue in verse 3 that the work of love and the, the work of faith and the labor of love, I'm going to argue those are really the same thing because their work is loving and it's faithful. It's from faith, it's also from love. And so they are, they are because of their faith in Christ, because of their love for Christ, that's leading them to live for Christ it's, and, making an, and make an impact in their world. And the steadfast hope, the patience of hope, is that continuance of the work of faith and love. Look at Galatians 5, 6. I think I have that up there for you. Notice how love is the fruit of faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So I want you to see how this works. Our faith in God, our love for God, and our hope in Him leads us to loving service towards Him and to serve others. And that should be, church, our motivating factor for why we serve God and others. Why do we serve God? Why do we come to church? Why do we read our Bible? Why do we try to help our neighbors? Why do we do all these things? Because we have faith in Christ. Because we have a love for Christ. And what we're going to see all throughout 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, we have a hope in 
Christ. He's thankful to the church. He's thankful to God for the church because he has heard about their faithful, loving, persevering service. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 is a verse that I think many people might would skip if they were studying this chapter. We do our best here to try to never skip verses. And he gives us this something he knows. What do we, we know? Something we know here. There's something we know, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to help us understand verse 3. Why do they have a work of faith? Why do they have a labor of love? Why is this church serving God in hope and in patience and in steadfastness? Well, the grounds for it is here in verse 4. We know that God has chosen you. We know your election of God. Let me remind you of my pastor years ago who I was sitting in a Wednesday night service. I was sitting in the back, and someone asked him about election in the Bible. And he, from his lips, and by the way, this is a doctor. He's a doctor pastor. This doctor pastor said, election is not in the Bible. And I, I remember going, what? The word's right there. What are you talking about? The word's right there. I see it. I don't care what translation you go to. It's in there. So we're going to talk about it. What does this mean? We've talked about it before. We saw it in Romans. We saw it in John. We're going to see it in 1 Thessalonians. You're going to see it in the entire Bible. That God unconditionally, in love, chooses whom he will before the foundation of the world. So look at the verse. How do they have a work of faith? How do they labor of love? How do they have hope in Christ? Well, the foundation of it, the grounds of it, is that God has chosen them to have these things. And if you're here today and you have faith and love for God and hope in Christ, it's not because you deserved it or you were good enough for it, right? It's not because you just happened to be born into the right household. It's not because you happened to go to the right church. If you have faith and love and hope in Christ, it's because he decided a long, long time ago that you would be his. And then he sent his son to accomplish that and made you his, his child. So faith is awakened in us by God, gives rise to love. We hope in the future. We work and labor for Christ. We're steadfast in it. And every step of the way, we say the title of this sermon, thanks be to God. Let me show you quickly here the order of salvation. I put this in my notes last minute. You probably can't write all this down. And this is, may not be a perfect example, but a perfect order. But election, God choosing his people before the foundation of the world. Number two, the gospel call. That's when you heard someone, maybe a parent, a grandparent, a pastor, a Sunday school teacher. That's when you heard someone preach the gospel. Do you remember that? Do you remember when you first heard the gospel? Or do you remember when you first heard the gospel and it really meant something to you? Where God was really working in you? Like, oh, that's not just words anymore from a preacher. That's real to me. That's the gospel call. I'm giving the gospel call today, by the way, as I preach on Christ. and You're hearing the gospel. Number three is regeneration. That's when you're born again. That's when God gives you a new heart. This is a spiritual thing that God does through his Holy Spirit as you hear the word and he changes your heart. And as that happens, the next thing is conversion, which means as God gives you a new heart, it's a heart that is able to believe and repent. And so we trust in Christ as he changes our heart. These next two things happen again simultaneously. But we're justified, which means though we are guilty of sin, we're declared righteous because of Christ. We sang it a moment ago, all our sin for your grace. What a glorious exchange. That's justification. 
At the same time, we see adoption as we are regenerated and converted, and we're justified, we are adopted into God's family. It's not just a legal transaction where God says, you're innocent. God says, no, you're my child. Number seven, sanctification. That's where all of us who are Christians, we're in this stage now where we are becoming less like the world and more like Christ, trying to become the men and women God's called us to be, being sanctified in him. And as we do that, life is hard. Things try to bring us down, but we have, because of God, perseverance. He helps us remain a Christian because once we are truly a Christian, we are always truly a Christian. He causes us to persevere. The final two steps of salvation is death, when we go to be with him, and glorification, receiving that resurrection body. As we sang earlier, what a day that will be. So let me ask you this as you look at that, church. In verse 3, when Paul's thanking the God for the church, which of those is he thanking God for? I would say in this entire chapter, really most of these, most of these. But I want you to pinpoint in on 7 and 8. On 7 and 8, he's saying, I am thankful. I mean, I'm thankful to God for your salvation, of course. But I'm thankful that God is sanctifying you. Through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is mentioned twice here in this text. Through the Holy Spirit, he is sanctifying you and causing you, church, the flickering candle in a dark world, causing you to continue to burn, to light up the darkness. God is with them and guiding them. I thought about this illustration. as I remember a couple years ago teaching Aubrey to ride a bike. And we live, we have a sidewalk right beside a, a fairly busy street. So we're always paranoid about letting the kids go down there. And as we're teaching her to ride a bike, I'm running along beside her. She's on the bike, right? And I'm pushing her along. Many of you have done this, right, with your kids. And I'm just, the whole time I'm running, am I letting her go? No, I'm not letting her go because I'm scared she might run into the road or crash. But eventually, right, as she gets more of a hang of it, what do we do as parents? You let them go, right? And you're just like praying she don't crash. And finally, I'll never, I'll never forget that one day, I let her go. It was just like this. She just figured it out, right? And there she goes. Now she's, you know, doing willies and going fast. I'm like, what are you doing? Calm down. But that's how we do our kids when we're training them. But I want to show you something. In this order of salvation, as God saves and guides his people from now until home, he never lets go of the bike. He puts us on, He created the bike. He puts us on the bike. He holds the bike. He never lets us go. I think a better illustration is it's one of those bikes with two seats, and he's riding in the front, and we're in the back, right? And, yeah, there's, we have to do some pedaling along the way, but he's driving. God is over the entire order of your salvation from beginning to end, and because of that, we say today, thanks be to God for every step of the way. I want you to see 2 Thessalonians 2.13. We'll see this again at some point in the study if we make it there, Lord willing. In 2 Thessalonians 2.13, notice that this says the same thing as 1 Thessalonians. On the screen it says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Do you see the parallel between this verse 13 
and 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, and 4. He's really just repeating himself. And he's driving home the point that God is the decisive factor in salvation and all spiritual growth. But church, I want you to notice something else back in chapter 1, verse 4. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 4. He says, brethren beloved of God. Another way, another way to say that is church whom God loves. Those whom God loves. And I want to talk for a moment about the riches of God's love for his people. And I wonder if we think about that enough. It, we hear it said as a cliche, right? God loves you. We've all heard that, right? God loves you. And that's a good thing to say. But do we really truly feel the weight of what it means to say God loves you? And a lot of times I think we, we hear verses like an amazing verse is John 3.16. Where it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so we, but, but in, that, in that verse, I wonder if that's such a vague thought in our minds. God loves me just like he loves the world. And that, to me, that seems a little vague. Let me give you a better example of the love mentioned here when he says, brethren beloved of God. A better example is Ephesians 5.25. In Ephesians 5.25, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus and says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see, when I say God loves you, this is not a generic, basic, general love. Yes, there is a basic, general love I believe God has for all of his creation. All people made in his image. But I think it's clear in scripture from beginning to end, there is a special love that God pours out on his people. Look at Ephesians 5.25. Husbands in this room, we are called to love everyone, right? So there's a sense in which we can love every lady in here who is our sister in Christ, right? But what we all know as spouses is that our husband, our wife or husband, whichever way you go there, we have a special love toward them, don't we? And so I love my wife more than anybody else in the entire world, right? And as husbands should love wives in that way, that's how God loves us. Look at this next verse, Romans 1.7. He says, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, now, there were a lot of people living in Rome when Paul wrote this letter 2,000 years ago. Is he talking to every person who lived in Rome when he wrote that letter? I'm talking, Paul writes, I'm talking to the ones in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. There is a distinction between God's love for creation and for all people, which is general, and God's specific love for his people. There is a difference. And if you are a Christian, you should feel the truth of God's love for you that way. And when you think, thinking of his love, you realize he deserves all credit, all glory, all praise, and yes, all thanksgiving for everything in your life. Look at verse 5. He continues to kind of stack these points on top of each other. And in verse 5, he says, Because our gospel 
came not unto you in word only. We didn't just preach the word and y'all hear the word and go about your business. He says, but in power, in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance. So looking at verse 5, the first half of it, is he talking about power that was displayed in the Thessalonians, in the Holy Ghost in the Thessalonians, assurance of the Thessalonians? I think he's really talking there about himself and Timothy and Silas. I think he's talking about these men of God who came and preached the word. And he says, we preach not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit, with conviction. Because he then says, in the last part of the verse, you know what kind of men we were, men of God, men of the word, men of the gospel. And so again, I'm not just preaching, he says. We didn't just preach basic boring sermons where nothing happened, but we preached the word of God and lives were changed because the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit was involved in that word. So one of my biggest fears, and I do think about this often and pray about it often, it's like, I pray I'm never just standing up here talking or that I'm never just standing up here saying things that are not getting past this front section, right? It's my prayer that that God's word would go forth from this pulpit, whether it's me or Jason or anybody that's in this pulpit, and that we would receive it. And that only happens through Christ and through the Spirit guiding that. By the way, when the Holy Spirit is involved here and power is involved, I don't believe this means that the Spirit's job is to produce unintelligible languages or cause us to run around in a frenzy. No, the power and the Spirit is to guide us to leave, lead holy lives primarily so the gospel came in power in conviction look at verse 6 and hearing that gospel you became followers of us and of the lord why is he thankful to god he's, he's thinking back we preached and you church you became followers you imitated us as believers you imitated the lord having received the word in much affliction with joy, and there's the Holy Spirit mentioned again, with joy of the Holy Spirit. So in verse 6, uh, to, me, to me, in verse 6, Paul is saying, the, the fruit of the word is in us, and now in verse, that's in verse 5, and in verse 6, now the fruit of the word is in you. See how the gospel is shared and multiplied here. A couple of important key words here in verse 6. You receive the word of the gospel with joy, and in much affliction. Make a note of those two words. You received it in affliction and with joy. Let me ask you a question, church. Might be a tricky question. Does joy in someone's life prove that they are a Christian? Does joy, which is one of the, one of the fruits of the Spirit, does joy prove salvation? Let me tell you why it does not. In Mark 4, 16 and 17, listen to what this parable says. It's the, it's the parable of the sower, right? Sowing seed. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, but they have no root in themselves. They endure for a while, but when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, they immediately fall away. Do you know people, have you been in this place in your life? Some, some have testimonies like this where 
you received Christ and you were happy for a while, but then you realize, I, didn't really, I was never truly saved. I never truly knew Christ. The parable here talks about this and says, does persecution or tribulation or trial, does that strip away your joy? Does that strip away your, your faith in Christ? Again, in verse 6, he says, you, church, received the word in much affliction. They did not allow the sinful, idolatrous city they lived in to take away their faith. God continued to persevere them, and they persevered in the faith. You see, a true Christian has a joy in Christ that ultimately is unshakable. No matter what bad things happen in our lives, ultimately our trust in Him, our joy in Him, is unshakable. Let me give you a couple of final applicable thoughts here. Pretty simple. Number one, we need to give thanks to God for everything in our lives. Everything, right? Count your many blessings. Thankful. Be thankful you were able to get up and just be here this morning, right? Thankful for your family, your friends, your church, your job, everything you have, your home. But more than all those things, to be thankful for these doctrines that we discussed this morning. To be thankful that God loves you. To be thankful that God showed his love in sending his son. To be thankful that God gave you that new heart. And to be thankful that God's guiding you even now in your sanctification. Thanks be to him. The second application I would say to us is to follow in the footsteps of the Thessalonians and be examples of the faith. To be examples of the faith. Verse 7, our final verse of our text, he says, You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. This little church, this young, small church, had not been around very long, and yet people in other surrounding areas, Macedonia, Achaia, these other areas, had heard of their faith. And so you might be over in Berea, another city nearby, and you might be struggling, like, man, our church is struggling, what do we do? And you hear of their faith, and you say, well, the Thessalonians are continuing in their faith, that encourages us to continue in our faith. And so we do that for each other, right? As we serve Christ, we're examples for each other, and I pray we would be examples for those around us. So, we started this morning with that illustration of the candle in a dark room. And we said that, that described the church that Paul is writing to. I want you for a moment, as we close, to put yourself in their shoes. Because for the most part, we here where we live, as far as persecution is concerned, right, we have it easy, don't we? For the most part. Rarely any of us have been heavily persecuted. Imagine being in their shoes where you're facing open opposition and ridicule and persecution. And imagine in the midst of that, you continue to love, to hope, and to serve. And to borrow a cliche, the church in Thessalonica, they were not just surviving, they were thriving in Christ. This is the power of faith. A faith that is not passive, but that is active in God, trusting in Him to empower us. A faith that will guide us through all trials and tribulation, and a faith that brings us, helps us bring light to every dark corner. My final thought today, be inspired by the Thessalonian believers. 
They weren't perfect, by the way. We're going to see that later on in this study. They had some issues. But we can be inspired, and we can ask this question. Are we uh, a candle kind of flickering in the wind, allowing circumstances to dictate our faith? Or are we standing strong, letting the light of Christ shine through us, even in much affliction? May we see their faith. May we see their love. May we see their hope. And may we imitate that as we imitate Christ as well. In all things in your life this morning, I hope you can say this. Thanks be to God. Let's pray.